Hey, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are continuing a new sermon series called Get Greedy-er. And uh, we are going to Matthew chapter 6, so grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew 6. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. And um, if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to page 811, 811. We're going to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24, um, and then zeroing in on a couple of verses uh, really at the heart of that passage. So Matthew 6, 19 through 25, starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will um, hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. The word of the Lord. All right, a year and a half ago, we started um, a capital campaign. And uh, we called it Rooted in Growing because the idea behind it is, is really the vision here is that we want to put down roots in this community um, so that we can grow in ministry to our neighbors, right? We want to put down roots into this community and, and, and allow Trailhead Church to move beyond just being a church plant or a temporary influence, but to become more of a permanent fixture in this community. We want to build something that is going to outlast us, right? That is going to have an impact while we're here and, and be a source of blessing to, to this community. Um, but we want it to to be a blessing to this community um, long after um, we leave and, and move on, right? And, uh, and so we were looking at a building at the time and, and really thought that's where God was leading us. Um, but the message we, we cast was we don't know what's happening. We just know God's telling us to get ready. That building fell through um, and, uh, and, and yet we continued to get ready. And, and you as a church um, responded very faithfully and um, our capital campaign is a year and a half in. We are halfway through now, and, um, uh, and ultimately God has just recently blessed us with a building, uh, something that was very unexpected. We weren't looking for it, and um, uh, the conversation kind of found us, and, uh, and, and, and it did, right? So now we own a building. Uh, it's right down the street. Um, I have the keys to it in my pocket right now, uh, but we can't really use it yet because it's not outfitted for our use, right? It was designed to be a fraternity, not to be a church, and, and so we're going to have to do some pretty significant um, rehab. The building is in great shape. It just wasn't designed for what we need it to be uh, used for, and so um, we want to renovate it, and we want to do it quickly. And so as we were praying um, about this, we decided to bring these needs to the body, uh, much like we did a year and a half ago, right? To, to basically say, look, this is, the, this is the opportunity we have, and this is the challenge we have in order to take advantage of the opportunity. And uh, a year and a half ago, we launched our capital campaign with a sermon series called Get Greedy. It was a, a five-week look at um, the discipleship of stewardship, uh, how we handle our money, and what God has to say about how we handle our money. And uh, last week, we started a new sermon series called Get Greedy-er. It is, uh, in a sense, part two 
Um, and uh, whereas first time we spent time in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this time we're going to be spending time in Matthew 6. Now, many of you missed last week because it was Labor Day and, and it was a three-day weekend and a lot of you were traveling. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to get online and actually listen to the first sermon in the series. Uh, we unpacked um, the first two verses, uh, actually three verses in this passage. And um, in many ways, it's kind of foundational to the rest of the series, right? The, the, the general premise um, is the same as, as 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's if we get greedy for the right things, it frees our hearts from greed for the wrong things, right? That what we're talking about here is really about the affections of the heart much more than what we're talking as far as like your pocketbook and how much money you have and, and the rest of that. What we're talking about is, is the devotion of your heart. And, um, and so we looked last week at how Jesus challenged us not to lay up for ourselves earthly treasures, which literally means do not treasure your earthly treasures. Instead, treasure your heavenly treasure, right? Don't look to your earthly treasures to do for you what only God can do, to be for you what only God can be. Don't, don't look to your earthly wealth to ultimately try to um, meet the deeper needs of your soul. Instead, value Jesus, and his kingdom. Treasure God's love for you and allow that love for you to feed you in ways that your material wealth and possessions simply can't. Set your affections on God and look to him to be God and to do for you what only he can do. Right? So that's kind of where we were at last week. I encourage you to get online, listen to that if you, if you missed it. Today we're going to be looking at verses 22 and 23. Um, these are the most enigmatic verses of the passage. This is a, a rather challenging little section um, because Jesus starts speaking in metaphors. Um, it, he often did that, and, uh, and, and those often some, uh, can be the most challenging passages for us to uh, interpret. So I want to take a little closer look at these two verses and unpack the metaphor a little bit so we can see what it has for us. I'm going to put it on the screen so that we can just keep it in front of us. All right, so Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? So obviously what we have here is, is both a metaphor and a warning, right? Jesus is saying, uh, in a sense, that the eye of the body is, is, is symbolic, right? He's, he's speaking of the eye as something deeper. He says the eye is, is like a window, right? It lets light in to your body, right? And as a result, your whole body benefits from that light, right? Your, your eye is um, a critical functioning piece of the entire body, and the entire body is, in many ways, very dependent on it. Now, if your eye is bad physically... If you are blind, the whole body is entrapped in darkness, right? There's, there's no other way to, um, to compensate for that. And then Jesus drives home how important this is at the end with a warning, right? What he says is, man, if you, if you have this kind of darkness, the kind of darkness I'm talking about, if you have this kind of darkness in you, man, it's really dark. It's bad, <laughs> And when Jesus says something is bad, you can count on it being really bad, right? So he's, he's basically driving it home. What he's saying is what I'm saying right now is really important, really important. Because if you miss this and you're stuck with the darkness, you, it's really dark. It is bad news. So we have a metaphor about how we see. 
And what Jesus is saying is there's a way of seeing life that gives light. And there's another way of seeing life that enslaves us in darkness. Now, there's a couple words in these two verses that deserve closer attention um, because I think they're going to help us as we dig into the metaphor, right? Um, They lose a bit of their nuance in translation. Um, The Bible was originally written in Greek, and what we're reading is a translation, right? It's the same Bible. It says the, the same thing, but there are times in the translation that we lose a little bit of the nuance of the original words. So the two words I want to pay attention to are, are the words healthy and bad. If your eye is healthy or if your eye is bad. The Greek word for healthy is a, a Greek word haplous, and it's translated healthy here. But, it, but translated literally, what this says is is The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. This is a word that often is translated single. In this context, it it implies healthy. His his readers would have gotten the, the double meaning of what he was saying right? If your eye is is singular in its vision, if it is focused, if it if it lacks ulterior motives, if it is without guile, then your eye is healthy. So what we mean here obviously is a focus of life that is that is singular, that isn't deceptive, that isn't split, um, isn't isn't um, distracted. It is focused and singular. It is without guile um, on, on the right thing, right? It is a focus of life that, that's on the right thing. And, and when, you're, when your eye is filled in that way, when it is single, focused, honest, and without ulterior motives, then your life will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, and the Greek word here is paneros, um, and it doesn't mean defective, like, like it implied here, you'd think if your eye was defective or if it wasn't working right. The word paneros literally means evil. Bad in the sense of degenerate or wicked. If your eye is wicked, then you have an eye that isn't healthy. And it will cut you off from light. And it will enslave you to darkness. Now, I guess we could probably make these verses say whatever we wanted, right? That's kind of the challenge with metaphors is ultimately uh, a metaphor is like an empty box and you have to put a meaning in there, right? So he's saying, um, here is a symbolic saying that is supposed to give you insight. um, And and we need to be careful how we approach metaphorical language in the Bible because we don't want to simply put whatever we want in there. And that's where we need to consider the rule of context, right? Right. Anytime we want to understand a passage in the Bible, we have to consider it in the context in in which it is given, right? We need to look at the sentence and the paragraph and the book and take a look and see what is the general flow and and how we make sense of it in that context. In the uh, coming political race, you're going to get plenty of examples of what happens when things are are taken out of context, right? You're going to get a picture of that politician that you despise. It's going to be a meme and it's going to be their face and and underneath it, it's going to be a quote that says, I hate puppies, and, and you're going to be like, I knew it. I knew that guy hated puppies. And I'm going to re- repost this because he hates puppies, right? And, and then when you actually look up the original quote, he said, you know what I hate? Puppies getting abandoned. Now, did he say I hate puppies? 
Yes. Those three words in that order. But taken out of context, it means something very, very different than what it meant in context, right? Context is king when we are trying to interpret things. This whole passage is a passage about money, right? The, past, the verses before are, are about earthly treasure and, and, and heavenly treasure and how there's a competing um, force of affection within our hearts. The verses after uh, are Jesus going to be saying, look, you can't, you can't serve two masters, right? You're either going to serve money or you're going to serve God. Again, it's about this conflict in our heart, this tension between our love for God and our love for wealth. And so what we need to recognize is this metaphor is clearly going to be insightful into our relationship to money and how money intersects with life. And I think what he's saying is this. You're either going to see life through grace or you're going to see life through greed. You're either going to see life through your heavenly treasure or you're going to fill your vision with your earthly treasure and as a result, you're going to see life through greed. Seeing life through grace is the clarifying lens that allows you to see all of life accurately and clearly. Seeing life through greed ultimately distorts the entire image. So you walk away with what you think is a perception of reality, but it is in fact not. And like somebody whose eyesight is distorted, it increasingly darkens your experience of life. So seeing life through grace will change you. It will free you and bless you and give you joy, but seeing life through greed change you too. But it's going to do the opposite. It's going to rob you of light, and it's going to rob you of joy, and it's going to rob you of freedom, right? It's going to enslave you in that darkness. And as Jesus says, man, how dark is that darkness? So let me show you what I mean a little bit. Um, I'm going to use a, uh, a model that, that I've been using quite a bit over the last year um, because I I think it's informative, right? So when we're talking about viewing life through grace, having a grace vision of life, it starts by us filling our vision of our need and God's grace to meet that need, right? So what that means is is when we're viewing life, we don't do it through the focus of what do I have and what do I want. We begin with a focus on what have I received? What have I been given? It's a fundamentally different way of beginning the way you look at life. It's a fundamentally different way of beginning how you're going to look at your day, how you're going to look at your job, how you're going to look at your, your pocketbook or your checkbook or your Excel spreadsheet, right? It's, it's, it's a focus on, on not on what I have or what I don't have, but what I've been graciously been given. See, when we fill our vision with what God has graciously given us, it reminds us of how deeply we are loved by God, right? God has given us in Christ all things, right? In giving us his son, he gave us all things with his son. We had a great need and we owed a great debt. Our great need was to be resurrected, all right? Our great debt was a sin debt against God right? The penalty of which was death, eternal separation from the source of life. 
It was a gap too great for us to bridge. It was a debt too great for us to pay. And yet God looked at it and said, I will identify with your weakness. I will not reject you because of your rebellion. I will become one of you. And I will live the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died and rise again so that when you believe in me, my record will be yours. He took our record on the cross and died for it and then gives us his record in its place. My greatest problem has been solved. My greatest debt has been paid. Christian, do you believe that? Not not just like, oh yeah, I acknowledge that, but do you believe that? Like, is that the driving truth through which you see the rest of life? Is that the driving experience that allows you to interpret both the joys and the sorrows of the day? That your greatest debt has been paid, your greatest problem has been solved. The God of the universe, the sovereign, holy, beautiful God, the creator of all things, doesn't just love humanity. He loves you. And he has placed his delight on you in a unique and personal way in that he removed your sin and your debt and personally covered you with the righteousness of his son. You guys, as we let that sink in, it does something to us. It changes us. I mean, it really does. It changes the way we, we view the struggle of the day. It changes the way we, we view our, our, our blessings and our challenges. It, it changes the way we view all of life, recognizing that this life is not all there is. And in fact, this life is simply the, the, the precursor. It's like the, the forward to the true novel, the greater story that is being written of, of the restoration and, and, and reconciliation of all things to God, a new creation a new kingdom. So what this, right, what you, I want you to see is this doesn't just affect our behavior, right? When we approach our relationship with God and make it simply about our behavior, oh man, I need to stop doing those bad things. Oh, I need to start doing the right things. Oh man, I need to start praying. I need to stop doing, we miss the mark because our relationship with God is not first about what we do for him. It is first about what he's done for us. The truest, deepest, most profound experience of the Christian life is a life of responding to his love, not initiating trying to earn it or initiating to try to deserve it or initiating trying to change ourselves. It's responding And in responding, we discover true change. In responding, we discover genuine transformation. In being loved, we learn to love. So grace needs to be the primary lens through which we see all of life. When we see life through grace, it changes our experience of it. And what it does is it produces within us an experience of gratitude. Now, gratitude, think about it this way, you guys. Gratitude is a combination of thankfulness and contentment. It is a combination of thankfulness and contentment, right? When we fill our vision with grace, with the God who loves us and what he's done in demonstration of that love and how he has blessed us um, so abundantly, right? We grow in thankfulness, right? And, And think about this. Thankfulness is joy returning to the source of joy, 
The God who has given us joy produces within us a thankfulness in which, in which we want to return that joy to the source of the joy, right? Isn't that what thankfulness is? We're looking at somebody, we're like, man, thank you. Not just saying it, but actually experiencing that moment. What we're saying is you have blessed me in some way and I want to return that blessing to you. You've, you've given me joy and I want to return that, that joy to you. It is love returning to the source of love. We were loved, so we love in return, right? So thankfulness is the natural outgrowth of experiencing grace, but also we experience and grow in contentment. That restlessness of our souls that is clawing and grasping and fighting quiets down because the hunger, the true hunger of the soul is being fed. Our true hunger of our soul is not for more things, but more love. Uh, The true hunger of the soul is not for more money, but more a deeper experience of, 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 of being loved. And so there is a growing contentment. It's because we're feasting on what we were actually designed to feast on, you guys. Our souls were never designed to feast on material wealth. Our souls were never designed to, to find its security in, in, in having a big bank account or having people's affection, being able to win over their, their love or buy their approval or, or success in trying to measure up and have people envious. When we're trying to feed our souls on that stuff, it increases the discontent and magnifies the hunger, the true hunger of the soul. It can dull it for a while. But in the end, the the pangs of hunger come back even more powerfully. See, grace meets our deepest needs for approval. I am approved by the God of the universe. He looks at me and delights in me. It meets my deepest need for success. To have a purposeful, meaningful challenge placed in front of me, the inability to actually measure up to it. I I don't need to measure up and find the envy of man when I have the approval and the delight of God. It meets my deepest need for comfort and joy. I don't need to distract myself with what I can purchase and what I can buy and the next temporary distraction of entertainment or, or, or the titillation of something uh, that, that is immersive, a new movie or a new game or a new book. Or, and when we finish it, then the hunger returns. We're like, what's the next thing that's going to distract us from our boring, desperate lives? When, you, when you're being fed here, man, you understand joy. And joy is so much better than amusement, right? This is where you find true security. You don't find security in, in, in having a big bank account. You don't find security in, in, in having people envy you or tell you how great you are or tell you they like you. You find security in the fact that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, loves you and is for you. And he will not fail you. And the God who gave his son for you, how will he not with him give you all things? And even in the struggles, you know he's being faithful to bless you and change you and do something good in the pain so that in the end, it will be to his glory and for your good. Gratitude. That meeting place of of thankfulness and contentment. That deep sense of having joy and returning joy, of having our deepest soul needs fed. 
that gratitude works its way out in our lives through generosity. The natural outgrowth of gratitude is generosity, right? When you experience this deep sense of thankfulness and contentment, you'll move out no longer grasping, but giving. The God who gave to you will move you to give to others. And that means we'll do it, right? We'll do it with our, with our money and we'll do it with our resources, but we'll do it with a lot more than that, man. We're going to do it with our whole lives, right? God didn't just solve one of our problems. He solved our deepest and most profound problem. The one problem that ultimately is foundational to all the others. And as we go deep into that, it frees us, not, not just with our money, but with our time and our relational capacity and our affection. We start giving instead of taking. We start loving instead of selfishly clamoring to be loved. We start seeking to meet other people's needs because our deepest needs are deeply met by the God who loves us. God makes us generous as we experience his generosity because we have received so freely and we're amazed at how freely God has given to us. It moves us to freely give to others, not just those that deserve it, but those that don't. Not just those to whom we find an affinity or an affection, but those that we don't even like, knowing that God didn't move toward us because we were so lovely, but because he was a God of love. And in loving us, he made us lovely. And as we move in generosity, as we push forward in, that, in that, it, the grace of giving, we experience more grace. We discover and rediscover the beauty of God's love. As we move out in giving to others, we push back in and, and discover the beauty of God's love for us. You guys, I want to be really clear about this. Generosity is sacrifice. And it's going to hurt. Generosity is sacrifice. Because in, in being generous, I'm giving away something that I could keep for myself. I am giving away something that, that, that I potentially not only want but need. Something I could hoard for myself, I gladly give to another. My money, my resources, my time, my relational energy, to a greater and greater degree, I give it away. The only way we can actually do this, the only thing that makes this possible is if our hearts are filled with a deep experience of grace. I hope you guys see that. What we're talking about is the same thing Jesus explored in the previous couple of verses. There's a war in your heart and it's going to show up in your, in your checkbook because you're 
going, you're, the natural tendency of your heart is to hoard and self-protect and build your own kingdom and give just enough so that you feel good about yourself, but not so much that it actually hurts. That's where generosity can actually become a spiritual act of warfare against the sinfulness of your own heart. There are times we give when we don't feel like giving. There are times it feels a lot more like sacrifice than generosity. I want you to see fundamentally the only difference between the two is our heart attitude. When it feels more and more and more like sacrifice, it's because we're tasting less and less and less of grace to motivate the freedom of giving. Does that mean we shouldn't give? Does that mean we should just kind of hold back and stop giving because it's just a little bit too uncomfortable? I'm going to wait till God changes my heart? No, <laughs> right? No, we, we step forward in faith to test God's faithfulness. We step forward in faith to experience more of the blessing that has been promised to us in the gospel. When Jesus said, take up your cross and bear it daily, what he was saying is that there is at the heart of Christianity a daily dying to self. There's a piece of Christianity that in order to experience more and more life, we need to experience more and more death. But not death in the unhealthy kind, not the death of the world, not the death of being separated from God, but death to self, death to death. We are increasingly dying to those selfish, self-centered impulses of our hearts. That's where giving can in fact become an act of spiritual warfare against what's trying to kill us. It is a step of faith saying, I want more grace. It is a step of faith saying, God gave me everything. And I want to experience more of what he's given me. I want to honor the God who gave. And I want to taste more of the grace that he has made available to me. So I give. And I do it as an act of worship. And I do it as an act of obedience. And I do it as an act of faith. What happens when we don't? What happens when we don't give? What happens when we allow greed to become a greater motivation in our lives than grace? Well, when we do that, we reverse the cycle, right? We reverse the cycle. And when the cycle spins the other way, not out in generosity, but in, in selfishness and self-focus, um, it destroys us. Take a look. This is what happens when we see life through greed, right? Our primary vision for looking at life is not the grace of God and the giving of God and the bounty of God, but the limited resources of what I have and what I want. I begin my day not looking through the lens of the God who has blessed me and provides for me, but the lens of how I can bless myself and provide for myself. I don't begin in a place of responding to the love of God. I begin in a place of uh, achieving, of earning, of protecting I'm no longer dependent on the source of life. I am trying to gain life absent from him. So we look at the world as a place of limited resources. And as a place of limited resources, I have to look after what I've got. I got to protect me. If I don't look after myself, who is? If I don't put myself first, who is? There's so many people around me that want to take advantage of me. They just want to suck me dry. 
They want to take my time. They want to take my energy. They want to take my money. I need to create boundaries. I need to place, create this safe space around me where I can give, but, but I can also protect. And I end up seeing life as a competition where if I don't get mine, I never will because no one else provided. it. So I got to keep what I've got. I got to protect it and I got to get more. I need to take care of myself and provide for myself. And subtly what I'm saying, subtly what I'm saying is I can't trust God. If I give away too much, I can't trust him to take care of me. If I give away too much money or if I give away too much of my time, if I give away too much of my relational energy, I can't trust God to meet my deepest heart needs. I don't trust him. I got to protect myself. So I trust myself and I hoard what I have and I lust for what I don't have. What ends up happening is I end up grasping and grasping for more. And the anxiety kicks in because you just can't seem to hold on tight enough. No matter how much you try to hoard, you just never seem to have enough. You know you're in this mindset when, when whatever it is you're trying to protect, whatever it is, your time, your relational energy, you just, I just don't have enough. <laughs> I can't give away anymore. I don't even have enough for me. So you start grasping. And you start asking the question, well, how am I going to deal with this grasping? How am I going to provide for myself? And the answer is always the same. If I could just have a little more, then I could be generous. If I could just have a little more money, then I could be generous. If I could just have a little bit more relational energy, then I could be generous. If I just had a little bit more time, then I could be generous. Ironically, no matter how much you get, the answer is always the same, isn't it? How much more do you need? Just a little more. Just a little more. So deceptive. So deceptive. What this leads to, you guys, is it causes us to lose focus on the blessings we have and to fill our vision with the blessings we think we don't have. And this causes us to grumble. Now, grumbling is that thing that we do under our breath when we're not happy. You ever done it? All right, so what'd you say? Nothing. Yeah, you ever done that? Right? Grumbling is this, this, it's the expression of the dissatisfaction of the soul. One author put it this way, grumbling is dissatisfaction with what is. It is dissatisfaction with what is. It is this grumbling, this churning, this discontent, right? Grumbling is the opposite of thankfulness. It's not joy responding to joy. It's the birth of bitterness in response to what is perceived as the injustice of life. It's not contentment. It's the opposite of contentment. It's discontentment. It is the grumbling and the groaning and the movement that says it's not enough and I deserve more. It's a negative self-talk where we simply reinforce over and over and are over our dissatisfaction, not only with what is, but what we deserve, what we think we deserve is better. It isn't good enough. It isn't fun enough. It isn't easy enough. It isn't comfortable enough. It isn't enough. 
and this kind of hard attitude of grumbling only incites within us a greater experience of greed. I want you to see the cycle reverses, but it doesn't stop. It is an inward cycle. Instead of an outward push to light and life, it is an inward pull to the black hole of self-centered, self-obsessed, self-focus. And it only results in increased grasping and increased grumbling because you will never get enough. Never. You know why? Because you don't really need more money. You don't really need more time. You don't really need more relational capacity. You know what you really need more of? An experience of God's love. Your deepest heart needs can't be filled with temporal things. You guys, if you're in that place of grumbling, you need to recognize it is a lie to think that all you need is a little more. Because no matter how much you get, it's simply sucked into the black hole. It sucks out all the light and joy and freedom out of our lives. You guys, that's why Jesus said, if this darkness is in you, man, how great is that darkness? And it only gets darker. All right, to drive this home, I want to quote the great theologian William Shatner. When I was growing up, he was totally the man. Like, for real, he was the man. Uh, I, I, I grew up and, and I would watch things like The Twilight Zone, which was on its first run. That tells you how old I am. Um, and, and, and some of them were, were, hey, hey, some of them were still in the, you know. And William Shatner, man, he was in one of the best ones ever. He was in this airplane and they took off and he's by this window seat by the wing and he looks out the wing and there's this monster tearing away at the wing and, and he's like, hey, 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 panicking and everyone shows up and there's nothing out there. And, and by the time they're done, man, they're locking him up and putting him into the crazy place. And, and as he's walking away, he can see on the wing the, how the, the, the tear marks that it actually was out. William Shatner was awesome. He was, the, uh, he was Captain Kirk in Star Trek. If you've got any Trekkies in here. Um, I wasn't much of a Trekkie, but I would watch Star Trek. Um, he was um, the hero of the day in, in every episode. There was one episode called The Man Eater. And in this episode, he introduced us to this lovely creature. Um, isn't that nice? Yeah, this is... Uh, this is, I would say, what 70s or 80s um, makeup artists could produce. This is the salt vampire. Um, she could read your mind, and she could shapeshift to become what you wanted her to be, okay? And so uh, she would ultimately seduce you by portraying a physical image um, that, that was what you wanted, right? And, and so if you, there was a, a, a love of your life that was lost, the salt monster would become that, that woman or that man. Uh, if there was a friend that you were deeply affectionate of, the, the salt monster would become that 
person, right? And then when she did, what she would do is she would seduce you into loving her and and all those positive feelings you had for that person, she would divert to her. And and so she was feeding in a sense on on your love and on your affection. And then she would use you to get to all your friends and to everybody around you because she basically would then come in and and suck all the salt out of their body and, and kill them right? And they discovered this when they landed on the planet and started finding all the red shirts dead, right? Never wear red shirts around Captain Kirk, right? Because they're the ones that die when you land on the planet. And, and so they discovered that, that these people were dying and it was because this salt monster was sucking all the salt out of their, out of their bodies, right? There was a man living on an abandoned planet and, um, and the salt monster was using him to lure others there so it could feed. And when Kirk finally figured out what was going on, when William Shatner finally got his insight, He confronted the man, right? And he said this. He said, this thing, this salt vampire becomes wife, lover, best friend, wise man, fool, idol, slave. It isn't a bad life to have everyone in the universe at your beck and call. The man on the surface of the planet knew that the salt monster was deceiving, but chose to ignore it. Because a salt monster would be whoever he wanted it to be. You guys, this is what greed is. Greed is like the salt vampire. Money can become whatever you want it to be. Money can take on any shape. It can promise you anything that your heart wants. Different people accumulate money for different reasons. Some people do it for security. Some people do it for approval. Some people cling to it because it makes them feel like success and and wins them the envy of others. Some people long for it because they are looking for comfort and pleasure and and, and the distractions that this life affords, right? Money can take on any exterior appearance and seduce us. It can make you feel loved. It can make you feel secure. It can make you feel like a success. It can distract you from your boredom. But all the while, you guys, all the while, listen to me, it is sucking you dry. Jesus is pulling back the curtain of our self-deception and he's saying, this is what you'll see when you really look. It's hideous. And it's deadly. It will suck your life dry of joy and love and freedom You guys, we live in a culture of greed. We call it a a consumerist economy. Our economy is driven by consumerism. And so we live in an economy that celebrates greed, right? Every every day we are are hammered with, with messages that tell us, if you could just look like this, if you could just have this, if you could just achieve this, and by the way, you can buy it. You can buy your way into this appearance. You can buy your way into this experience. You can buy your way into this. And those messages pound our souls. But here's the thing, man. Our soul loves it. Because outside of Christ, before the grace of God breaks into our lives, we are in the greed cycle and we love it. We're in love with the salt monster, man. We're in love with the the image because our deepest needs aren't being met by God, and so we have to deceive ourselves into thinking these things can. We live in a culture that's not just greedy, it worships greed. 
And the message we hear every single day is more and more and more because it's never enough. You guys, we need to get greedier for what is real. We need to get greedier for grace. The gospel calls us to be a counterculture within our culture. The gospel calls us as a people to be people who live by the values and the driving motivations of his kingdom, not this world's kingdom. We are supposed to be a city set on the hill, a city within the city calling people to a deeper experience of what it means to be human. To be loved by God, set free by the power of God, experiencing the grace of God. We should be driven by the principles of God's kingdom, not the principles of this dying world. I'm jealous for this, you guys, as as a church. I want us to be a free people. A free people. I want us to be a people that are deeply shaped by and celebrating and experiencing grace. A people marked by a radical kind of freedom that is countercultural and unexplainable to the people around us outside of the grace of God. That's why the capital campaign can't just be about the building. Our goal is not just to get a building and to finally have a place we can call our own and have a place to do weddings and funerals and a place to have our worship nights. And it can't just be about us. It's not about getting the right building. It's about being the right people to move into that building. God is using the challenges in front of us to shape us and to change us so that we can not just have a place to gather and worship, but will be a place to be a countercultural light of the gospel to a lost and dying world that desperately needs more grace and less greed. God's going to use the challenges and the opportunities in front of us to change us our hearts, individually and as a people, and to free us. And as we move out in generosity, it's going to free us into a deeper and more profound experience of His grace. And it's going to free us to do things that don't make sense in our culture of greed, things that just don't make sense, but make perfect sense in the culture of grace, perfect sense in the kingdom of God. I have so many stories, and this morning I don't have time to share them all. We're going to share some more over the coming weeks, but I'll just share one. A year and a half ago, I sat down with one of our leaders, and uh, he was absolutely committed. He and his family were absolutely committed to, to seeing this church move forward and get a building and, and become a permanent um, fixture in this community, putting down roots in this community to grow in gospel ministry to our neighbors, right? Absolutely committed. He was, in fact, one of the lead givers to the capital campaign, right? And by a lead giver, I'm talking about a $30,000 gift of the course of, of three years. So I'm about somebody who is very, very sacrificial in their giving. And as we're talking and as we're meeting and we're kind of going over numbers and we're wrestling, he's like, man, Steve, I got to confess something to you. I'm not giving enough. It's not really sacrificial. It doesn't hurt enough. <laughs> 
Does that even make sense? For someone to look at me and say it doesn't hurt enough? It makes perfect sense when you realize that the deeper motivation is not self-comfort, not self-promotion, not the kingdom of self, but a greater and deeper hunger for an experience of the grace of God. Saying, I'm still being self-protective. God has blessed me to a degree that I can be more generous, not more self-centered. That makes absolutely no sense unless you look at it through the lens of the gospel. And then it makes perfect sense, right? Then it makes perfect sense. In fact, that's what makes perfect sense of the history of the entire church. That's what makes perfect sense of of God, a God who left the comfort of heaven, right? He who knew no sin became flesh and walked among us that he might become our sin and die for us. That makes no sense unless you realize that grace leads to generosity and generosity or, or gratitude and gratitude leads to generosity. Generosity leads to a deeper experience of grace. I think what we're going to see through this process is we're going to see some folks grow in the grace of giving. And I use that language carefully because it is a grace. There's a sense in which we experience the grace of God as we push forward and sacrifice Trusting that that sacrifice will later feel like generosity, right? Non-givers are going to become givers, and, and givers are going to become regular givers, and regular givers are going to, to become joyful, sacrificial givers. These critical transitions in the discipleship of our stewardship. We're moving into a greater and greater experience of how grace shapes us and frees us. And it'll move us from thinking about how much do I have to give to how much can I give. God, how much are you freeing me to be generous? How much are you prospering me, not for my comfort, not for my gain, but for your kingdom? How much can I give? When we see life in light of the dawning kingdom, it changes the way we view everything. And sometimes it's going to feel like death because there's a piece of us that need to die. But what's happening in that moment is you are spinning the current in a new direction in your heart. And that disruption, that painful reorientation is an act of faith by which we are saying to God, I want a deeper experience of grace. I want to let you know about some upcoming dates. I want you to be praying about these things and thinking about these things. Um, We have some pressing needs, and I'm going to explain in more detail in in coming weeks and and putting some stuff on the city. We are getting much more clarity on how we need to move forward. Um, We have a chunk of money that we've already collected, about half of the initial, we're halfway through, we've collected about half of the initial um, capital campaign offering, which is a huge blessing. Um, But but if we're going to get into our building um, in the next, you know, before you know, in the next four to six months, um, we have a challenge in front of us, and we're going to be explaining the details of that. One of the pieces of that, though, is we're going to be asking you guys to, to recommit to the capital campaign. Those of you who have committed, honor your commitment, all right? Those of you who have committed, say, I will honor my commitment. I, I will follow through, right? For those of you who have 
pledged to the capital campaign and God has prospered you over the course of this, of the last year and a half. And you're looking at it saying, I can give more. Pray about it. Ask God if you should. Ask God, should I give more than I already pledged? Have you equipped me and blessed me and, and prospered me in such a way that I can? And should I do that for your honor? For some of you who have come um, since the beginning of the capital campaign, um, it's going to mean for you stepping in and being part of it, jumping in for the last year and a half and praying about how you can be part of this critical phase of, of um, the growth of this church. Ultimately, our plan is to take out a short-term loan that will help us move into our building, but we can't take out that loan if we don't have the money pledged um, to actually cover it. And, uh, and so as I've already shared previ- you know, previously, we really need additional $150,000 pledged over the next year and a half um, over the, the current five, um, about 550, 575 that we currently have pledged. So just pray about it with us, will you? Just pray about it with us. Pray about how God wants to move you to generosity. If what you're hearing me say right now sounds really self-serving and selfish, if what you're hearing me say is, oh man, Steve great, preached this great sermon and now he wants our money, give your money to somebody else. Give your money to somebody you trust if you don't trust us. I'm telling you, give. Stop finding excuses not to. Stop getting yourself off the hook because, oh, well, cynicism is your heart's protection against the hope of the gospel. And if that's where your heart is going, don't let yourself go there. Give. It will change you. It will free you. It will bless you. And pray about it. If God wants you to partner with us, great. We would love it because we believe we are doing something that ultimately God has called us to do. We're going to move into a time of response, and um, I'm going to put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray about it, listen, respond, let God speak to your heart. Um, We're going to share communion in a moment. We'll introduce that. Let me pray for us, and we'll go into our time of response. Father God, I thank you. Man, I just thank you (laughs) that you are a generous God, that you are a God who is not content to let us sit back and destroy ourselves in our self-deceptions. That you are not a God who is um, content seeing your glory diminished as we, the people created in the image of your glory, seek to find our deepest needs met in things that can't meet them. I thank you that you led the way in sacrifice, that you led the way in showing us that genuine love always gives Free our hearts, Lord, from the death cycle of greed. Free our hearts from the self-protection and the lies that we believe that enslave us. Free our hearts to glorify you.